0: Hello everybody and welcome back to the Crypto Economy podcast. Today I'm very excited to have Juan David, the co-founder and chairman of Keyrock, here to explain a little bit more about how his company is going to change the game for Ethereum in this upcoming bull run. So thank you so much for being here today, Juan.
1: Thank you, Mark. Happy to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Me
0: too. So to get started, could you maybe just go over your background, how you got interested in crypto, and ultimately how that led you to Keyrock?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think from my side, I I was originally born in, in Colombia, and 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 I think you know when when you're born in in that kind of country, it's, it's slightly more straightforward to associate the value of digital assets to to real economy, right? Just slightly, but but it is. So a uh, fortunate uh, for me. Uh, my family and, and some of my first professional experience were actually working at the Central Bank of, of Colombia. So I was, I was engaged in, in, you know, like the process of making the money, you could say. <laughs> so so when I stumbled upon upon Bitcoin, it, it, I, I kind of understood what it meant as an economic model very early on. I guess maybe call it luck, but uh, I, I could, or at least I believed that I could see the value of it pretty early on. So I started to engage into into the digital asset ecosystem, trying to understand where I could add value and uh, that, that drove me to, to really understanding and, and trying to analyze the concept of tokenization and, and the concept of, of w- what is it behind, what is the value proposition that tokenization really brings. Uh, and the conclusion for me was very simple, was the idea of, of liquidity, correct? Taking something that, that you can make liquidity for uh, an incentive mechanism and, and, and bring liquidity to it, so I, I decided to to work on on that and that's that's how I, I started and I got engaged into into this ecosystem
0: I mean liquidity
1: is huge, and I think
0: a lot of people don't understand liquidity they don't understand how it impacts crypto and price fluctuations and getting rugged and all these other things. so could you maybe just do a very simple background i guess, or breakdown of why liquidity matters, um, and how it's different in crypto than maybe other
1: uh, other economies? No, absolutely. I mean, like liquidity, li- liquidity on its own, it's a value proposition of an asset, correct? Like if you take two assets and say two identical assets, but one of the two is liquid, meaning everybody can buy and sell it at any given point in time, uh, that actually on its own generates an increase of value in that asset. Like ty- typically a more liquid asset would have a premium just because of the fact of how easy it is to dispose of it or to use as collateral for something else. Liquidity is uh, is on its own the capacity for you to count on the value of your asset at any given point in time. That doesn't mean that you're going to sell it. But the fact that you could sell it all of a sudden opens a door of possibilities. It opens the capacity for you, for you to use it as collateral for other actions. You use it, 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 it allows you to use it in, in, in a way, as a mechanism to manage a treasury. You could look at it that way, right? So, an asset that, that gets unlocked and it unlocks its value into, into the ecosystem. Uh, in, in the digital asset space, liquidity at the end of the day is the same as liquidity in any traditional asset. There is no really a real difference between a commodity equities and a digital assets of liquidity. What's very different is that there are no common agreements into how to value these assets. That's really what's underlying the difference, right? So there is liquidity on an asset. We both know that we can sell this asset, let's say a, a, an equity or commodity. And in plus or minus, there are some recognized ways in which we can both agree how much they're worth. And therefore we can input that into our pricing models of a liquidity engine such that people can buy and sell. With digital assets is slightly more complex because it's still too immature and, and, and there's no real agreement on how do you value a utility token as a matter of fact and therefore generates a lot more volatility because the price discovery process is more messy price discovery process depends substantially on a very big element of macro correct all of the digital assets depend on is the macro climate doing well when 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 the economy is doing well the bitcoin is doing well everything does well and when it doesn't then it doesn't correct but then there is also a, mi- a micro component but. It's very hard to tell how much is worth. Therefore, price discovery gets done through a lot of volatility. But ultimately these assets do actually end up to to become very liquid, even though the process to get there is a little bit more messy.
0: That makes perfect sense. And I think a lot of people uh, are used to working with traditional assets where there's always liquidity. And so a lot of people will come into an early crypto project and realize that there's no liquidity at all uh, and really freak out. And so how are you guys, you know, coming to the table to to improve liquidity? Um, and why is, you know, Ethereum more specifically the place that you guys want to do that?
1: So look, I mean, uh... I co-founded Kiroq uh, around six years or so. Like Kirok is an algorithmic trading company at heart, focused on researching and developing technology to make liquidity scalable, and and that's what we've been working on for for, for the past years. Um, we try to to try to bring liquidity in a way where we can do it at scale. That's kind of like the concept what we try to do. When it comes down to the digital asset ecosystem, initially Ethereum was definitely the biggest playground for innovation. And still today, um, the game has changed slightly where the role of Ethereum in the, in, in the trading universe and the liquidity universe is changing more to a settlement layer and maybe an account abstraction layer instead of, of the place where, where majority of the actual interactions happen. Um, and, and we believe in that, so, so, so we like the idea of trying to find technologies, DeFi protocols, and systems that enable Ethereum to be used as, um, as, as this account abstraction layer, but try to provide a service that is more palatable and cheaper to use maybe in sidechains across the universe. That being said, we, we do experiment and test all types of other technologies, correct? Like we, Ethereum took the lead in the industry and therefore we trade predominantly on the DeFi ecosystem of Ethereum when we trade on a smart contract basis. But a lot of the other ecosystems that are developing are trying to tackle different niche uh, cases that Ethereum was not solving for, therefore generating also a lot of value for liquidity to live in those ecosystems.
0: So when you create multi-chain liquidity, what is the process for doing that? How can you ensure that there's enough liquidity on both sides? How do you go about deciding which projects to, you know, roll that out to? Um, Just what are the considerations?
1: It's definitely a a very complex uh, puzzle, correct? To try to take a protocol and build liquidity across multiple ecosystems. And and somehow it's a little bit of of a decision where you can reach Uh, a broader community, you can get access to more users, but at the same time, you are splitting your liquidity and making it more thin, which is the negative to adoption of your protocol. And it's a balancing act between the two. Ultimately, between the different protocols, the the systems that are in place today are predominantly what's called bridges, right? So you would have a mechanism that would allow people to trade assets or to transpose assets from one chain to the other, sometimes natively and sometimes synthetically. Yeah. So typically as a market maker, there are two things to be done there. What's very interesting, which is first, you can use bridges to definitely keep liquidity in different pockets, different ecosystems, and then moving around. But you can also participate as a provider of liquidity for those bridges. So instead of you providing liquidity to the protocols, you can say, okay, I see a lot of people wanting to move liquidity between Arbitrum and Solana. Okay, why don't we help by holding assets in both chains? And when people want to move money from one chain to the other, we as a market maker hold and help basically receive from one giving the other and help people move around. Typically, you do that by, by connecting your liquidity to, to different bridges that would require liquidity providers to operate in, in practice.
0: So, when you're deciding, are there certain incentives put in place by different protocols that make it a lot more attractive to you to use one bridge or one protocol as opposed to another, or is the majority of the decision making how much existing liquidity there is and how much you expect there to be and what kind of you know margin you can take yeah, there? Yeah.
1: For us, for us, definitely we we have a, a division of the company which is very mature market making business where you would predominantly want to stay in the most liquid places, yeah? But the reality of this industry is that it moves very fast, correct? So if, yeah. you, <laughs> if you're not willing to, to take some risk to go and test, experiment, and deploy capital in some places that are lower liquidity, then you might fail to innovate and to be disrupted in this industry, correct? Like in the six years that I've been in the industry, the liquidity landscape has changed enough that even the early stage companies could have been disrupted by the new business models that had come out into how to manage liquidity. So, so definitely trying to iterate and test some of the more more early on financial primitives and, and protocols. Now, experimenting is expensive. Craig, you need to have a team. You need to have data systems engineering. So, so definitely the liquidity incentive mechanisms are something that we consider when selecting where are we going to do our experimentation, right? Which protocols are we going to test? Where are we going to prototype? And and that's the only way that you can look at it as a, as a long-term investment, right? a long-term view, which is you invest into building technology to manage liquidity on an ecosystem. And you would hope that uh, you join that success story in the future as you helped that protocol to grow, uh, especially at the, at the level that we can do it. We typically. Engage with protocols at the protocol level, but also with the founders and with the teams and try to help them to understand how to, go, how to build a go-to-market strategy, how to build a liquidity strategy, uh, and, and, and provide our value not only on the capital, but also on our knowledge and the capacity for them to understand how to generate adoption. For, for the protocol ultimately, which is our objective, correct? Like the protocol needs to get adoption and liquidity is a driver of adoption. So we want to provide liquidity so that there is adoption. If there is no adoption at the end of the day, there's no point, right?
0: Yep, absolutely. So, I mean, in a lot of ways, you're almost coming in as an investor that's willing to park some capital that sort of believes in the company, the mission. So from that perspective, how do you determine which protocols, which companies that you feel comfortable working with? Do you have a thesis that's maybe we really like investing in, uh, you know, leverage trading? We really like investing in, you know, wallets or certain things? Um, Or is it really just whatever comes your way, you take it on a case by case basis?
1: No, definitely. There is an investment thesis in, in, in some of the things that we do that are more related to that early stage section of liquidity, typically our our investment thesis is divided on two subcategories that are very simple. The first one is we wanna invest on products, the capacity for new asset classes to be tokenized and traded in a digital way. We are market makers, of course, it has a very direct connection with our core business. The more assets are blockchain based and our digital assets can be traded on chain, potential, that's a potential business in which we can also engage in the future. So there is a direct a strategic connection to, to that. So that's the first angle. So in that, we'll explore things like uh, carbon bonds tokenization, but also derivative, new derivative ecosystems, new p- financial primitives that are allowing for new type of products. Uh, we le- recently invested, for example, in an interest rate swap uh, platform. We just, we just think, okay. In the digital asset ecosystem, there should be a capacity to trade swaps. So let's let's help this company that is enabling people to do that on chain. And then the second investment thesis is the idea that we look for protocols, technology, infrastructure that simplifies the value chain of liquidity as a whole. So everything that would make liquidity easier to access, to manage, to build, uh, it's something that is interesting for us. And so, if a company fits into one of these two categories, so somebody that is building a new a new system to enable something to be tokenized, or a new technology for liquidity, though, those would be interesting for us. An example of the second one would be an an AMM, correct, or a, like you say, a new way of doing Degen leverage, but that actually has some like fi- new financial primitives uh, behind the mechanics of how it works.
0: Yep, that makes perfect sense. So. I mean, throughout crypto's history, there have been a lot of liquidity crunches. We've had, you know, companies like Alamedia who have, you know, withdrawn massive amounts of liquidity from certain pairs across DEXs and things like that. Are there uh, any sort of, uh, I guess, protocols in place from your end where you guys have some protection against that or things that you're doing to prevent against potentially getting involved in, you know, some pool that gets rubbed by another company
1: that that isn't you guys. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, Painfully, we have learned what are the mechanics that you can put in place to try to prevent this from happening. And the reality of it is that we don't know what we don't know, correct? Like there could still be other vulnerabilities that we have not foreseen. But we typically have a pretty good risk schema where we try to look at all of the things that we know that could happen as an outcome of a contract. And try to build constant monitoring systems to understand what's happening. Correct. So, for example, if you have a smart contract that has a dependency on an oracle, you should be monitoring that oracle on a risk engine. Correct. Because maybe the oracle fails, and then you need to have a procedure and a plan on what to do when that happens. Something else that we do that it also happens is if if a if a smart contract depends on a margin pool, right? Depends on collateral to fulfill a payment, yeah, um, you can actually track the size of that collateral pool. And if you see that it starts to go suspiciously down without any reason, you can sometimes very easily anticipate drainage and withdraw your capital before the actual real event happens. Majority of unforeseen vulnerabilities can be detected at small scale first before they actually happen at big scale, right You can start seeing failures because when, when the failures initially happen, people discover them and they they test them in small size correct? and then and then they, they plan they go and they plan a big attack the The third thing that we also do is not only the monitoring but also the concept of test every outcome. Right? You have a smart contract, and in the in the, the protocol itself uh, in the documentation says. This is how our protocol works. Let's you know, give you a stupid example. I have a trading account. If your account is in negative, you shouldn't be able to withdraw your collateral. Total sense, correct? Basic stuff. Well, we actually take the protocol and we test it. We put like $1,000, make a, a trade on purpose to lose money, see it go in a negative, and then try to withdraw. And it shouldn't let you withdraw the capital, correct? Okay. But we actually go and do it. And... You'd be surprised, we actually found once a protocol where we managed to withdraw the capital in something very similar to what I just described. And I was like, oh geez, let's get <laughs> out of here. <laughs> uh,
0: it's amazing how few people actually just try the protocols that either they invest tons of money in or start to work with, uh, exactly.
1: you know. Basically, like, it's like, try to withdraw the capital that you shouldn't be able to and see if it works. Yeah. Because if you manage, some of the people are gonna manage to do this as well, correct? And of course, they, they're making sure there's audited and so on. But on top of the audits, these are some of the techniques that you can implement to, to test these protocols. And they're not very complex, to be honest. So where are you guys today? Uh, you mentioned you, know,
0: you, you had a partner there. So are you guys live? And if so, um, how have you gone about attracting you know, some of your initial partners? Were there certain criteria that you wanted them to meet, um, or were they just sort of knocking down your door uh, and you started taking, taking
1: the people that came through? So you're talking about Kirok or about yes, what correct, in particular? Correct.
0: Yeah. So yeah. Kirok, do you guys have partners in place now? Or are you guys live in the market?
1: Yeah, definitely. So, uh, so like I said, we've been around for, for six years now, correct? Uh, we have 170 employees. Nice. And, uh, and, and we are one of the largest uh, algorithmic trading firms in, 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 the, crypto, in the crypto world. Uh, and based, based in Europe, offices wow. in in uh, Northern Europe, in London, in uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, as well. Uh, at the moment, we uh, have multiple business lines. So we have a we have a business in everything that is market making. We have uh, an OTC desk for institutional liquidity, a DeFi innovation lab that trades these early stage strategies and investments that I was describing, and an options market making unit, and uh, and an HFT uh trading team which it specializes in in ultra low uh, frequency uh, trading oh
0: that's cool yeah build out your own citadel for crypto we need that i know citadel's <laughs> not doing much i talked to those guys they're kind of they're a little behind the ball right now
1: so you guys got yeah. the edge. i mean that's, at, some that's point, great. Point gain, right? at some point they'll gain at some point they'll oh yeah they'll get in and but we'll be ready don't you worry exactly exactly so do I'll you have ready
0: uh, you know, who is your um, sort of ideal client, I guess, or maybe some clients that you have now? Are we talking larger centralized exchanges? Are we talking more protocol
1: level? Um, you know, can yeah, you give some really, examples of really who you dep- work with? Yeah, absolutely. It really depends on the on the business line by now. you, I would say when it comes down to the OTC institutional business, it will be like foundations, uh, large treasuries, trading firms, correct? hedge funds that are looking to trade. Against institutional liquidity, uh, on on our market making business is going to be the there are two divisions. There is market making as a, as, a, as a trading strategy, and there is market making as a service. Market making as a trading strategy will be predominantly the exchanges, correct? That like you building good relationship with exchanges to make sure that you have access, you have a good setup. And then on the other one, it will be uh, protocols, correct? So we care about making good partnerships with the people that are building the innovation of tomorrow. So there we want to work with the, you know, the best of and coming uh, protocols, the year ones, the years twos, uh, the uh, uh, real use cases. And and, and that, those are my favorite clients, to be honest, Kirk, because they're people that are, are really trying to build adoption into the industry. And if I can help them in the, in any capacity to, to drive that adoption, then, uh that's great.
0: Yeah. That's yeah, the same reason I do this podcast. You meet some really cool, really motivated people, and it's just excited to help them along however you can, see the industry evolve. Um, so, you've been doing this six years. I mean, could you maybe walk us through some of the ups and downs of the bull markets, the bear markets, maybe what you've learned in that time, having you know started a crypto company and been involved for this long?
1: Yeah. So, something goes up, something goes down. As a a trading firm, you're exposed to to your revenues exposed to volatility, correct? So, when the market is less volatile and there's less volume, you cannot make as much money as when there is high volatility and high volume, correct? So, So, what you could imagine is that even if we are non directional, so we are not, our revenues do not depend on the price of the assets going up and down, they do depend on interest in a sense, correct? So, when interest goes down, volatility goes down, volume goes down and it generates harder periods. But the, the, the variability of the revenue of a company like ours is a lot lower than what you would imagine uh, when you hear the concept of trading firm, right? Because we're not really directional. Uh, but throughout the years, nonetheless, we did have to face the fact that our customers were very exposed directionally to this industry, right? Which will have an effect on you. So, Throughout the 2018 cycle, especially, uh, a lot of great companies and great friends is just, they just went bankrupt. Right? And, and those were tough times. In the, in the birth cycle that, that, that we just passed, and I'm going to take that with caution, but I would <laughs> assume we just passed, yeah? Um, eh, the situation was definitely not as dramatic. Some few companies went out of business, but builders are still building. And as long as buildings are still building, there is interest. And for us, that is the predominant factor of success, right? If prices are down, but there is a lot of interest and people are building, volumes are there. And that's what we saw, right? Like compared to 2018, the the current 2022, 2023 cycle in the bear side came with a lot more volume than it did in 2018. Of course, volume went down from the peak but it stayed at a pretty healthy level, even at the lows, which for me just tells that there is a lot of interest still and in builders and building. So that's great. And that has been some of my, my learnings on that. I mean, I could tell you, I, 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 I could talk about this forever, but, but I think that summarizes no,
0: that's great. And I think it's great just to hear from people who've been doing it for a long time, who've been through the ups and downs. A lot of people, you know, they come when it's hot, they leave when it cools down. And so to just ride it out and uh, be able to mm. strategize and learn from it, I think has a lot of value. And especially for people who are just thinking about getting in. Um, I think it's it's worth hearing that you got to go through the ups and the downs uh, at some level. Um, so when you're working on finding new partners, Have you noticed big differences in working with uh centralized exchanges versus decentralized exchanges so in traditional finance there's not you know really a concept of a decentralized exchange so how does that change the math on market making i know i've used or i've just sort of played around with things like jupiter um, which will allow you to do you know leverage trading on solana but the liquidity is only ever about hundred thousand dollars for you know everyone using it. So are there certain considerations that you have to make on a dex versus sex? And uh, you know what are you uh, what are your sort of
1: uh, overall thoughts on that? This is a more complex question than what you think. the The definition of centralized exchange and decentralized exchange is something that is very blurry. I I believe that a better way to to package this is the concept of custody, right? which is either a custodial approach or a non-custodial approach, and then a risk analysis on how much risk you take against that counterparty, if any, right? So the reason that I say this is because a lot of people may not know this, but even in traditional finance, the majority of exchanges are decentralized in a sense, in what sense? In the non-custodial sense, because in crypto, we use the word decentralized not to refer to the fact that something is decentralized, but to refer that you're not taking risk to one counterparty. That's actually kind of like the meaning that has taken. Yeah. yeah. So if you look at something like, I don't know, like Nasdaq, correct? Nasdaq is non-custodial. There is a third-party custodian that would hold your assets, and you trade in Nasdaq, and then you settle against that custodian. Right? That's not too much difference than trading on the YDX using Fireblocks to hold your money, and then when you finish trading, you the money the money comes back to Fireblocks. Right? In that case, actually it becomes pretty pretty similar. But then inside of crypto, you would have what we call the centralized exchanges, which are they do everything. Right? They're brokers, custodian, trading, trading engines. And then, therefore, you're taking a massive counterparty risk to that one shop, correct, that one entity. But because they do that, they can also create a lot of network effects inside of the great ecosystem, correct? You can have cross leverage in an easier way, you can have more margin, you can have more lines of credit, you can have a lot of advantages, but then you take risk. And then, in this other world, in non custodian world, then the capital efficiency is getting better, but it's at the moment a lot lower. It's much harder to generate the same levels of capital efficiency that you would generate in the other model. But technology is showing a path to success in that way, correct? Right? So a lot of these decentralized exchanges are starting to use many components of, of cross-collateralization and composability to enable uh, capital efficiency. And that second element, the composability element, is very interesting because that doesn't really exist in the other world, correct? So as soon as you add this added layer of of, of of benefit, that's where it becomes very interesting because what I would believe is that in the future, it should be more efficient in the sense that your capital should be able to do a lot more because you should have the level to the same level of cross-collateralization and systems for, for borrowing and lending that you would have in traditional finance. But then on top of that, you would have all of the crypto stuff that doesn't exist, correct? You start to have composability, you start to have uh, you know flash loans, and you start to have like all of this cool stuff to, to, to help you to do them all. When we engage ourselves with some of these exchanges, the smart contract, contract risk is the one element that is very different, correct? And, they are, and again, there are different ways to deal with them and, 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 to, and to try to protect yourself. But it's still very early to tell. It's a little bit of an unknown how these risks are going to evolve. We have already seen some insurance companies insuring some of the best protocols in the industry. So it's definitely possible to offset that risk as well and then treat these exchanges like any other. A lot of unclarity from a regulatory perspective, uh, but I guess that will be for another day.
0: Yeah. So how do you go about making the decision of when uh, something is mature enough? So I know like ordinals, there's a lot of work being done right now to create liquidity pools, create decentralized protocols that allow you to do uh, a lot of this stuff on Bitcoin as opposed to Ethereum. So at one point, do you start looking at something like that and taking it seriously and deciding to actually uh, contribute?
1: Yeah, I'll give you two answers to that. First thing is there to test and test in small and then increase, correct? So the way that we do it is, let's say we have a person in the company, we say, hey, go and test this protocol, put $50,000 on it. Now, let's say it works and the person is happy with the fact that it's working, yeah? Then that person needs to make an internal case on why we should put more money on it by showcasing all of the risks that are associated to it and by showcasing that we have already capital deployed and that is working. And then maybe we increase it. And then it takes step by step, right? And the more capital, the more robust the risk analysis needs to be done. So that's the first thing. The second one, unfortunately, is just the most basic concept of all, right? Which is the protocols, they need to be lindy. At the end of the day, there's nothing we can do about it. Like They just need to survive a couple of, a couple of you know, terrible events. Give you a basic example, but protocols that survive 2022 are definitely better than new protocols. Like, I trust more Ave that survive both Luna and FTX with line colors than a new protocol. And maybe the new protocol is better, but they prove that in the toughest market, the thing didn't break. All right? So time yeah. would help us.
0: Absolutely. No, I think that's that's the smartest way to do it. And it always takes a while. you never want to buy into the hype of the newest, coolest thing because often those are, (laughs) those are the worst products. Uh, and everyone's, you know, everyone gets excited and, uh, you know, we saw that with FTX and friends last cycle. So I think it's very wise to sit back, see what the team does. I think at the end of the day, you learn a lot from how the team handles those situations and that's ultimately what matters. Um, so, for this next cycle, um, where do you hope Keyrock ends up by, say, the next uh, the end of the next bull run? Are there certain uh, KPIs that you guys are hoping to hit? Or are you just hoping to expand in sort of the same manner you've already been expanding? Or are there new products or initiatives that you're excited to launch? I
1: mean, we, we definitely have big dreams, right? Uh, ideally, we want to get to a point in the next couple of years where we are capable to do something that I call the the capacity to cross flows across all different digital asset classes. The idea here is quite simple, which is you can build liquidity of all shapes or forms and then find a way to take that and build a central risk engine that is capable to do this at, at, at scale. So this would mean becoming very active on all type of up coming derivative products, uh, all type of structure, OTC environments, all type of decentralized finance tools, financial primitives, new concepts of liquidity, virtual AMMs, AMMs, and, and, and all that. But not by doing it independently. But by understanding how all of the intention of the market, everything that is happening everywhere, it's actually connected. Everything is uh, fluid. And, and we want to be in a position, well, that's what we're going. I mean, we'd be going that way for a while, but we want to be in a position where we are like that ultimate element of understanding where it's going, if you could see it that way.
0: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So in respect to seeing where things are going i'm sure you get a lot of crypto companies coming across your desk you probably meet a lot of interesting people are there any companies or concepts that you've recently been really excited about um or technology that you feel is really going to take main stage uh in the coming months or years yeah,
1: no, definitely a lot a lot a lot uh, Fuck. Uh, i guess <laughs> maybe we can maybe we can split it by by layers correct like st- sure. starting from like like infrastructure and then going up to like the, the user base i mean i think on the uh, on the on the first layer i'm very excited about the idea that certain layer ones and new technology that is coming through the whole ecosystem is capable to create what i would call the apple store phenomenon which is we get to a point where users inherently trust apps which we are not there today correctly right? like, we're not in any. Every time you start using a new dApp, you think, "Fuck! I'm gonna lose my money. This is smart contract shit." And it used to be that way with web two apps. Correct? You used to use a, an Android app or something like that, and it was clunky, and you, you wouldn't trust it. You're like, and then the Apple Store created this environment where, if you're in the Apple Store, you know everything is kind of like stamp of quality, and then boom, you can use. And I think basically certain ecosystems in, in, in within DeFi are starting to get to that point by the use of multiple, uh, more robust technologies to generate checks and balances in the way that smart contracts are created. You know, I think that the implementation of Rust as a programming language across multiple chains now is a showcase of that, but also the initiative to to really enforce the developers a way of doing things that prevents those vulnerabilities to happen on, you know, chains like like Radix or systems like Aptos and Aptos and Sui uh, that are very interesting. So that's my take on on that first kind of like layer uh, in the in the ETH ecosystem, for example, the, the Polygon uh, uh, VM, which is kind of like in a similar similar orientation as as that that I just described. Then in the in the Let's say in, in, infrastructure element. Uh, I like a lot the fact that now these these institutional tools are getting to the point that they generate, they can generate real adoption. You know, like if you look at the quality of uh, the custodians and, and a lot of these up and coming like infrastructure layers, they are becoming very, very good. Right? I'm actually at the moment at the in Mexico at the uh, the Fireblocks Spark Conference, so notably a great uh, piece of infrastructure. Um, and then on the on the user layer, the protocol layer which is the one that I'm the most excited about there is a ton of innovation, correct? Honestly like the amount of new primitives that are coming to the market are great I'm personally very excited about the development of uh, virtual AMMs it is exploding at the moment there are like a ton of, of these things but not only for the creation of perpetuals, but also for the creation of all type of financial, financial system derivatives, correct? So like I was talking about the the fact that you can use virtual AMMs for interest rate swaps or for options and these things kind of like are starting to pop up and and they seem to get very good adoption Uh, but as well uh, all type of systems that are allowing for cross-margin engines between dApps correct so there's a lot of innovation small a lot of dApps that are trying to really serve as that middle layer vault technology that allows you to Put your collateral and then cross collateralize and trade or, or manage your assets on a universe of protocols, which I think is great. So those two are are, are interesting innovations that I've been have uh, been following. And then maybe maybe notably, I, I liked a lot this protocol that just came out called Panoptics as well. It just came out. It's been it's been a while, but it's just coming to market now, where they are trying to build a a, a very different approach to to liquidity on top of Uniswap. And I mean, time would tell if it's successful, but it seems to be exciting. That's that's awesome.
0: I'll have to take a look at that one. I haven't heard of that. So for people who are listening, are there ways that retail can get involved with Keyrock? Is this mostly an institutional offering? Or, you know, if I'm a listener, what can I do to support you guys or to stay, stay updated?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, on, on majority of our core offering is definitely more institutional. Yeah. But we do have some things that we that people can engage with us. Like we are a very active governance participant in a lot of DeFi protocols and we really try to help, try to understand where the products are going and, and try to guide the protocols throughout the governance platforms. So for anybody that is listening, we we do like recommend that you have a look at the, the governance structures that we're trying to put in place to help the industry. And you can delegate you can delegate to Kirok so to help us on our on our mission to to push through uh, to governance, you know, on chain on governance in the industry. Uh, outside of that, majority of our trading uh, services are definitely for institutionals only or for high net worth individuals. So th- if you count that as retail, then that's okay. Absolutely. Well, that's great to know. So
0: if anyone wants to follow you, um, are there some accounts that you might want to recommend, a website, anything uh, you want to plug here at the end?
1: yeah definitely so uh at kirok trading you can you can follow at kirok trading uh or my personal my personal uh x account would be uh juan d mendieta uh, follow perfect
0: i'll put those uh in the episode description so you guys can follow along uh and thank you so much for coming on the show we'll try to get you on uh, maybe towards the end of the bear market and uh see how things are going in a couple years um But this has been great, and I encourage you guys
1: all to follow along. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you very much, Mark. Have a very good day. Cheers. Thank you.